Chapter 4 of The Lost Cafuzalum. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Fisher. The session dissolves. We three get an intensive session course of instruction on our duties and are ordered off to sleep. After breakfast next morning, I am run into by Cray, who says, Before I continue about what is evidently pressing business, would I care to kick him hard? Not right now, I reply. What for, anyway? Miss Lee, says Cray, dragging it out longer than ever, although I have long realised that your brain functions in a way much superior to logic, I had not sense enough yesterday to follow my own instinct and do what you do as soon as you did it. Therefore, that desiccated meat-handler got in first. I say, oh, so you weren't picked for pilot. It was only one chance in ten. Oh, says Cray, did you think so? He gives me a long look and goes away. I suppose he noticed that when the colonel came out with his remarks about no women in Gilgamesh, I was as surprised as any. Presently, the three of us are issued with protective clothing. We might just have to venture out on the planet's surface, and therefore we get white one-piece suits to protect against the cold, heat, moisture, desiccation, radioactivity and mosquitoes, and they're quite becoming, really. B and I drag out dressing for thirty minutes. Then we just sit, while time crawls asymptotically towards the hour. Then the speaker calls us to go. We're out of the cabin before it says two words and racing for the hold, so that we're just in time to see a figure out of a historical movie, padded, jointed, tin bowl for head and blank reflecting glass where the face should be, stepping through the airlock. The Colonel and Mr. Yardo are there already. The Colonel packs us into the hopper and personally closes the door and for once I know what he is thinking. He is wishing he were not the only pilot in this ship who could possibly rely on bringing the ship off and on mass time at one particular defined spot of space. Then he leaves us half an hour to go. The light in the hold begins to alter. Instead of being softly diffused, it separates into sharp-edged beams, reflecting and criss-crossing, but leaving cones of shadow between. The air is being pumped into store. Fifteen minutes. The hull vibrates and a hatch slides open in the floor so that the black of space looks through. It closes again. Mr. Yardo lifts the hopper gently off its mount and lets it back in again. Testing. Five minutes to go. I am hypnotised by my chronometer. The hands are crawling through glue. I am still staring at it when, at the exact second, we go off mass time. No wait. I hook my heels under the seat and persuade my esophagus back into place. A new period of waiting has begun. Every so often comes the impression we're falling head first. The colonel using ship's drive to decelerate the whole system. Then more free fall. The hopper drifts very slowly out into the hold and hovers over the hatch, and the lights go. There is only the glow from the visiscreen and the instrument board. One minute, thirty seconds to go. The hatch slides open. I take a deep breath. I am still holding it when the colonel's voice comes over the speaker. Calling Gilgamesh. Calling the hopper. Goodbye and good luck. You're on your own. The ship is gone. Yet another stretch of time has been marked off for us. Thirty-seven minutes. The least time allowable if we're not to get overheated by friction with the air. Mr. Yardo is a good pilot. He's concentrating wholly on the visiscreen and thermometer. B and I are free to look around. I see nothing and say so. I did not know or have forgotten that Incognita has many small satellites, 
From here there are four in sight. I am still looking at them when B seizes my arm painfully and points below us. I see nothing and say so. B whispers it was there a moment ago, and it is pretty cloudy down there. Yes, Lizzie, there it is, look. And I see it, over to the left, very faint and far below, a pinprick of light. Light in the polar wastes of a sparsely inhabited planet, and since we are still five miles up, it is a very powerful light too. No doubt about it. As we descend further, about fifty miles from our objective, there are men, quite a lot of them. I think it is just then that I understand, really understand, the hazard of what we are doing. This is not an exercise, this is in dead earnest, and if we have missed an essential factor, or calculated something wrong, the result will not be a bad mark or a failed exam, or even our personal deaths, but incalculable harm and misery to millions of people we never heard of. Dead earnest. How in space did we ever have cheek enough for this? The lights might be the essential factor we have missed, but there is nothing we can do about them now. Mr. Yardo suddenly chuckles and points to the screen. There you are, Curlies. He's down. There, greyly dim, is the map the Colonel showed us. Right on the faint line of the cliff edge is a small, brilliant dot. The map is expanding rapidly, great lengths of coastline shooting out of sight at the edge of the screen. Mr. Yardo has the crosshairs centred on the dot which is Gilgamesh. The dot is changing shape. It is turning into a shorter lips, a longer one. The gyros are leaning her out over the sea. I look at my chronometer. Twelve fifty hours exactly. B looks too and grips my hand. Thirty seconds later. The andite has not blown. First safety fuse turned off. Surely she's leaning far enough out by now. We are hovering at five hundred feet. I can actually see the white edge of the sea beating at the cliff. Mr. Yardo keeps making small corrections. There is a wind out there trying to blow us away. It is cloudy here. I can see neither moons nor stars. Mr. Yardo checks the radio. Nothing yet. I stare downwards and fancy I can see a metallic gleam. Then there is a wordless shout from Mr. Yardo. A bright dot hurtles across the screen. And at the same time, I see a streak of blue flame tearing diagonally downwards a hundred feet away. The hopper shudders to a flat concussion in the air. We are all thrown off balance, and when I claw my way back to the screen, the moving dot is gone. So is Gilgamesh. B says numbly, But it wasn't a meteor. It can't have been. It doesn't matter what it was, I say. It was some sort of missile, I think. They must be even nearer to war than we thought. We wait. What for, I don't know. Another missile, perhaps? No more come. At last, Mr. Yardo stirs. His voice sounds creaky. I guess, he says, then clears his throat and tries again. I guess we have to go back up. B says, Lizzie, who was it? Do you know? Of course I do. Do you think McClare was going to risk one of us on that job? The volunteering was a fake. He went himself. B whispers, you're just guessing. Maybe, says Mr. Yardo, but I happened to see through that faceplate of his. It was the professor, all right. He has his hand on one of the controls, when my brain starts working again. I utter a strangled noise and dive for the hatch into the cargo hold. B tries to grab me, but I get it open and switch on the light. Fifty-fifty chance. I've lost. No, this is the one we came in, and the people who put in the cargo hold did not clear out my fish boat. They just clamped it neatly to the wall. I dive in and start to pass up the package. B shakes her head. No, Lizzie, we can't. Don't you remember? 
If we get caught, it would give everything away. Besides, there isn't any chance. Take a look at the screen, I tell her. Sharp exclamation from Mr. Yardo. B turns to look, then takes the package and helps me back. Mr. Yardo manoeuvres out over the sea till the thing is in the middle of the screen, then drops to a hundred feet. It is sticking out of the water at a fantastic angle, and the waves are hardly moving it. The nose of a ship. The antigrav, whispers B. The andite hasn't blown yet. Ten minutes, says Mr. Yardo thoughtfully. He turns to me with a sudden briskness. What's that, Lizzie girl? A fish boat? Good, we may need it. Let's have a look. It's mine, I tell him. Now look, tailor-made, I say. You might get into it, though I doubt it. You couldn't work the controls. It takes him fifteen seconds to realise there's no way around it. He is six foot three, and I am five foot one. Even B would find it hard. His face goes greyish, and he stares at me helplessly. Finally, he nods. All right, Lizzie, I guess we have to try it. Things certainly can't be much worse than they are. We'll go over to the beach there. On the beach, there is wind and spray and breakers, but nothing unmanageable. The cliffs on either side keep off the worst of the force. It is queer to feel moving air after 18 days in a ship. It takes six minutes to unpack and expand the boat, and by that time, it is ten minutes since the missile hit, and the andite has not blown. I crawl into the boat. In my protective clothing, it is a fairly tight fit. We agree that I will return to this same point, and they will start looking for me in fifty minutes' time, and will give up if I have not returned in two hours. I take two andite cartridges to deal with all eventualities, and snap the nose of the boat into place. At first I am very conscious of the two little white cigars in the pouch of my suit, but presently I have other things to think about. I use the limbs to crawl the last few yards of shingle into the water, and on across the sea bottom till I am beyond the line of breakers. Then I turn on the motor. I have already set the controls to home on Gilgamesh, and the radar will steer me off any obstructions. This journey in the dark is as safe as my trip around the reefs before all this started, though it doesn't feel that way. It takes twelve minutes to reach Gilgamesh, or rather the fragment that Antigrav is supporting. It is about half a mile from the beach. The radar stops me six feet from her, and I switch it off and turn to manual, an inch closer in. Lights, a very small close beam. The missile struck her about one-third of her length behind the nose. I know because I can see the whole of that length. It is hanging just above the water, sloping at thirty degrees to the horizontal. The ragged edge where it was torn from the rest is just dipping into the sea. If anyone sees this, I don't know what they will make of it, but no one could possibly think an ordinary spaceship suffered an ordinary crash, and very little investigation would show up the truth. I reach up with the forward set of limbs and grapple onto the brake. I now have somehow to get the hind set of limbs up without losing my grip. I can't. It takes several minutes to realise that I can just open the nose and crawl out. Immediately a wave hits me in the face and does its best to drag me into the sea. However, the interior of the ship is relatively sheltered, and presently I am inside and dragging the boat up out of reach. I need light. Presently I manage to detach one of the two from the boat. I turn it down to minimum close beam and hang it round my neck. Then I start up the black jag-edge tunnel of the ship. I have to get to the nose, find the fuse, change the setting to twenty minutes, maximum possible, and get out before it blows, out of the water I mean. The fish boat is not constructed to take explosions even half a mile away, but the first thing is to find the fuse, and I cannot make out how Gilgamesh is lying, and therefore cannot find the door through this bulkhead. Everything is ripped and twisted. In the end, I find a gap between the bulkhead itself and the hull, 
and squeeze through that. In the next compartment, things are more recognisable, and I eventually find the door. Fortunately, ships are designed so that you can get through doors even when they're in the ceiling. Actually, here I have to climb up an overhang, but the surface is provided with rungs, which make it not too bad. Finally, I reach the door. I shall have to use anti-grav to get down. Why didn't I just turn it on and jump? I forgot I had it. The door was a little way open when the missile struck. It buckled in its grooves and is jammed fast. I can get an arm through, no more. I switch on anti-grav and hang there, directing the light round the compartment. No rents anywhere, just buckling. This compartment is divided by a partition, and the door through that is open. There will be another door into the nose on the other side. I bring back my feet, ready to kick off in a dive through that doorway. Behind me something stirs. My muscles go into a spasm, like the one that causes a falling dream. My hold tears loose, and I go tumbling through the air, rebound from a wall, twist, and manage to hook one foot in the doorframe of the door I was aiming for. I pull myself down and turn off the antigrav. Then I just shake for a bit. The sound was... This is stupid. With everything torn to pieces in this ship, there is no wonder if bits shake loose and drop around. But it was not a metallic noise. It was a kind of soft dragging, very soft, that ended in a little thump, like a like a loose piece of plastic dislodged from its angle of rest and slithering down. Pull yourself together, Lizzie Lee. I look through the door into the other half of this level. Shambles, smashed machinery every which way, blocking the door, blocking everything. No way through. Suddenly I remember the tools. Mr. Yardo loaded the fish boat with all it would take. I crawl back and return with a 15-inch expanding beam lever and overuse it. The jammed trap door does not slide back into its grooves, but flips right out of them, bent double. It flies off into the dark and clangs its way to rest. I'm halfway through the opening when I hear the sound again. A soft slithering, a faint defeated thump. I freeze where I am, and then I hear the sigh. A long, long, weary sound, almost musical. An air leak somewhere in the hull, and wind or waves altering the air pressure below. All the same, I do not seem to be able to come any further through this door. Light might help. I turn the beam up and play it around cautiously. This is the last compartment, right in the nose. A sawn-off cone shape. No breaks here, though the hull is buckled to my left. And the floor, the partition, horizontal when the ship is in the normal operating position, which holds my trap door, is torn up. Some large, heavy object was welded to a thin surface skin, which has ripped away, leaving jagged edges and a pattern of girders below. There is no dust here. It has all been sucked out when the ship was open to space. Nothing to show the beam except the sliding yellow ellipse where it touches the wall. It glides and turns, spiralling down, deformed every so often where it crosses a projection or a dent, till it suddenly halts on a spoked disc, four feet across and standing nearly eighteen inches out from the wall. The antigrav. I never saw one this size. It is like the little personal affairs, as a giant is like a pygmy. Not only bigger but a bit different in proportion. I can see an andite cartridge fastened among the spokes. The fuse is a sympathiser, but it is probably somewhere close. The ellipse moves again. There is no feeling that I control it. It is hunting on its own, to and fro around the giant wheel. Lower. It halts on a small flat box, also bolted to the wall, a little way below. This is it. I can see the dial. The ellipse stands still, surrounding the fuse. There is something at the very edge of it. When Gilgamesh was right way up, the antigrav was bolted to one wall, about three feet above the floor. 
Now the lowest point is the place where this wall joins what used to be the floor. Something has fallen down to that point and is huddled there in the dark. The beam jerks suddenly up and the breath whoops out of me. A round thing sticking out of the wall. Then I realise it is an archaic space helmet, clamped to the wall for safety when the wearer took it off. I take charge of the ellipse of light and move it slowly down past the fuse to the thing below. A little dark scalloping at the edge of the light. The tips of fingers, a hand. I turn up the light. When the missile struck, the big computer was wrenched loose from the floor. It careened down as the floor tilted, taking with it anything that stood in its way. McClare was just stooping to the fuse, I think. The computer smashed against his legs and pinned him down in the angle between the wall and the floor. His legs are hidden by it. Because of the spacesuit, he does not look crushed. The thick, clumsy joints have kept their roundness so far as they are visible. Only his hands and head are bare and vulnerable-looking. I am halfway down, floating on minimum gravity, before it really occurs to me that he may be alive. I switch to half and drop beside him. His face is colourless, but he is breathing all right. First aid kit. I will never make fun of Space Force thoroughness again. Rows and rows of small plastic ampules, needles. Painkiller first. I read the directions twice, sweating. Emergencies only. This is. One dose only to be given, and if patient is not in good health, use. Never mind that. I fit on the longest needle and jab it through the suit, at the back of the thigh, as far towards the knee joint as I can get it because the suit is thinner. Half one side, half the other. Now to get the computer off. At a guess it weighs about 500 pounds. The beam lever would do it, but it would probably fall back. Antigrav. The personal size is supposed to take up to three times the weight of the average man. I take mine off and buckle the straps through a convenient gap. I have my hands on the thing when McClare sighs again. He's lying on his belly, but his head is turned to one side, towards me. Slowly his eyelids open. He catches the sight of my hand. His head moves a little and says, Lizzie, golden Liz. I say not to worry, we'll soon be out of here. His body jumps convulsively and he cries out. His hand reaches my sleeve and feels. He says, Liz, oh God, I thought, what? I say things are under control and just keep quiet a bit. His eyes close. After a moment he whispers, something hit the ship. A homing missile, I think. I ought not to have said that, but it seems to make no particular impression. Maybe he guessed as much. I was wrong in wanting to shift the computer straight away. The release of pressure might start a hemorrhage. I dig out ampules of blood seal and inject them into the space between the suit and the flesh as close to the damage as I can. McClare asks how the ship is lying, and I explain also how I got here. I dig out the six-by-two packet of expanding stretcher and read the directions. He is quiet for a minute or two, gathering strength. Then he says sharply, Lizzie, stop that and listen. The fuse for the andite is just under the antigrav. Go and find it. Go now. There's a dial with twenty divisions, marked in black. You see it? Turn the pointer to the last division. Is that done? Now, you see the switch under the pointer. Is your boat ready? I beg your pardon. Of course you left it that way. Then turn the switch and get out. I come back and see by my chrono that the blood seal should be set. I get my hands under the computer. McClare bangs his hand on the floor. Lizzie, you little idiot, don't you realise that even if you get me out of this ship, which is next to impossible, you'll be delayed all the way, and if the incognitans find either of us, the whole plan's ruined, much worse than ruined. Once they see it's a hoax, 
I tell him I have two andite sticks, and they won't find us on a night like this. Any story of explosions will be put down to sudden gusts or to lightning. He is silent for a moment while I start lifting the computer. Carefully, its effective weight with the antigrav full on is only about 20 pounds, but it has all its inertia. Then he says quietly, Please, Lizzie, can't you understand the worst nightmare in the whole affair has been the fear that one of you might get injured, or even killed? When I realised that only one person was needed to pilot Gilgamesh, it was the greatest relief I ever experienced. Now, you say... His voice picks up suddenly. Lizzie, you're beaten anyway. The... I'm losing all feeling, even pain. I can't feel anything behind my shoulders. It's creeping up. I say this means the painkiller I shot him with is acting as advertised, and he makes a sound as much like an explosive chuckle as anything, and it's quiet again. The curvature between the floor and the wall is not helpful. I'm trying to find a place to wedge the computer so it cannot fall back when I take off the antigrav. Presently I get it pushed onto a sort of ledge formed by a dent in the floor, which I think will hold it. I ease off the antigrav and the computer stays put. I don't like the looks of it, so let's get out of here. I push the package stretcher under his middle and pull the tape before I turn the light onto his legs to see the damage. I cannot make out very much. The joints of the suit are smashed some, but as far as I can see the inner lining is not broken, which means it is still air and watertight. I put a hand under his chest to feel how the stretcher is going. It is now expanded to 18 inches by 6, and I can feel it pushing out, but it is slow. What else have I to do? Oh yes, get the helmet. I am standing up to reach for it when McClare says, What are you doing? Well, don't put it on for a minute. There is something I would like to tell you, and with all respect for your obstinacy, I doubt very much whether I shall have another chance. Keep that light off me, will you? It hurts my eyes. You know, Lizzie, I dislike risking the lives of any of the students for whom I'm responsible, but as it happens, I find the idea of you blowing yourself to atoms particularly objectionable, because I happen to be in love with you. You're also one of my best students. I used to think that was why I'd been so insistent on your coming to Russet, but I rather think my motives were mixed even then. I meant to tell you this after you graduated, and to ask you to marry me, not that I thought you would. I know quite well. You never quite forgave me, but I don't want to have to remember. I didn't have the guts to. His voice trails off. I get a belated rush of sense to the head and turn the light onto his face. His head is turned sideways and his fist is clenched against the side of his neck. When I touch it, his hand falls open and five discharged ampules fall out. Painkiller. Maximum dose, one ampule. All that talk was just to hold my attention when he fixed the needles and I left the kit spread out right next to him. While I am taking this in, some small cold corner of my mind is remembering the instructions that are on the painkiller ampule. It does not say outright that it is the last refuge for men in extremity of pain and despair. Therefore it cannot say outright that they sometimes despair too soon, but it does tell you the name of the antidote. There are only three ampules of this, and they also say maximum dose one ampule. I try to work it out, but lacking all other information, the best I can do is inject two and keep one till later. I put that in my pocket. The stretcher is all expanded now, a very thin but quite rigid grid six feet by two. I lash him on it without changing his position and fasten the helmet over his head. Antigrav. The straps just go round him and the stretcher. I point the thing up towards the trap door and give it a gentle push. Then I scramble up the rungs and get there just in time to guide it through. It takes a knock then, and some more when I am getting it down to the next partition, but he can't feel it. 
This time I find the door, because the roar of noise behind it acts as a guide. The sea is getting up and is dashing halfway to the door as I crawl through. My boat is awash, pivoting to and fro on the grips of the front limbs. I grab it, release the limbs, and pull it as far back as the door. I manoeuvre the stretcher on top, and realise there is nothing to fasten it with, except the antigrav. I get that undone, holding the stretcher in balance, and manage to put it under the stretcher and pass the straps between the bars of the grid, then round the little boat, and the buckle just grips the last inch. It will hold, though. End of chapter 4